welcome to the Vineyard Cleveland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information and other resources, please visit vineyardcleveland.org. We are close to the end of our sermon series, A Life Worth Living, where we've been walking through the book of Ephesians to discover what God says about life and what, God call, what kind of life God calls us to, what life is really about. We started off with our origin about how we have become part of God's family, part of the bride of Christ, how we were brought from death into life, and it was completely God's doing, right? It was his grace that saved us as a free gift. We did nothing to earn it. It was apart from our works. None of our good deeds, none of our bad deeds, you know, were responsible for our new state, this new life that we've been given. And then how now that we've been made this new creation— God has empowered us to live a new kind of life. A new kind, we can be a new kind of community. We have new gifts. We have a new identity that we can live out um, in our day-to-day life. And uh, today, we're going to read Ephesians 6, uh, verses 10 through 13, and we're going to get a bit of a behind-the-scenes look at some of the opposition, some of the things that come up to stop us or slow us down in this new way of living. So let's read. Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. You can turn there in your Bibles or swipe there if you have the app or whatever. So finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and, after you've done everything, to stand. So, Paul, the apostle, is the guy who wrote Ephesians, and he wrote it in such a way that he gives us all the, like, the most important foundational stuff right up front, right? The beginning of the book of Ephesians starts off with, our identity, like how we were helplessly dead in our sin and how God's love reached out to us and brought us out of that into his family. While we were still sinners, he brought us into a new kind of life. And that this life is given through Jesus as a free gift and it cannot be earned, right? It's nothing that we do. It is all that life that we have is found in Jesus. And then he moves on from, okay, now that we've built this foundation of who you are, what does this life look like? And so from chapters four on, it's kind of like, all right, so you should be doing this. You shouldn't be doing this. Like, this is what the life looks like. This is what the life doesn't look like. And, uh, and you know, so it kind of builds on that through our personal life, through our gifts, through our communities and that kind of stuff. But God knows the tendencies of our hearts, right? And the tendency that we have is to forget about the foundations, to forget about that beginning stuff, about how it's not our works that earn us God's favor, that it's not the things that we do that earn God's love. And we get focused on, okay, he said to do this and not to do that. He said to do this and not to do that. And we want to change it into a works-based relationship. And the reason why we want to do this, why we often want to forget about the gospel stuff and about how we don't earn this is because if we change our relationship with God into a performance-based relationship, then it gives us a sense of control. Um, If God relates to me based off of how well I follow his commands, then that means I can try really hard to follow his commands and get God in the position of of owing me something, right? I've done my job, I earned my wages, and now he deserves, like I deserve the blessings. 
Um, and if I need something extra, then I feel like, okay, well, I can put some overtime in, some churchy stuff. I can uh, go and serve at the Thanksgiving dinner uh, that we had yesterday. I can rescue some kittens from trees. And then, you know, I'll really earn that position. Like, now I can really get that God's blessing because I've earned it. Um, and then it also gives us the benefit of feeling superior to others if they don't have their act together or if they don't have the blessing. So it's like, okay, well, you don't have that because you didn't earn it. You haven't done the right things. I've deserved the life that I've gotten. And on the flip side, if my life is not going the way that I want it, when God doesn't seem to be picking up my calls, and when life doesn't seem to be lining up with my plans, when I struggle with depression or loneliness, or when I, my, I sleep through my alarm and I stub my toe on the way to work, if, I've been, if I feel like I've been doing a good job, I'm like, God, what gifts? You know, it puts me in a position to judge God and say, you're not doing your job, I'm doing mine. Um, it still gives us that sense of control. And even... If I feel like I'm failing at this performance-based religion that I've invented, then it still gives me a little sense of control because I can look to my problems and say, oh, well, this is happening because I didn't read my Bible enough this week. If I read my Bible, I can, I can turn it back around. You know, it, it eliminates the peskiness of the fact that we are dealing with God and that God has his own plans and that his plans are good for us, but they're not always the plans that we have. And, and so when we turn into a control base, into a workspace thing, it gives us the kind of control so that we get to trust God less and kind of trust ourselves more. And uh, it, it boils it down to the cold, hard logic of, okay, well, we're, I'm just getting what I deserved. But God never gives us what we deserve. And praise God for that. Because our righteousness is so small and our sin is so great that we never deserve any good thing. Um, God gives us every good thing because he is good and because he is full of grace and because he loves us. And his goodness and grace and love, they don't change with our circumstances. They don't change with our actions or what we do and don't do. Um, our sin doesn't stop him from being who he is. Even when we are faithless, God will remain faithful because he cannot disown himself. And even the bad things that have happened to us didn't happen, they don't happen because we're getting what we deserve. In the disasters, in the tragedies, in the trials and the hard times, God is still acting out of his goodness and his grace and his love. He sees things that we don't see and he knows things that we don't know. Like I can't possibly comprehend the complicated way that God and his sovereignty and in his absolute power and in his goodness and in his grace interacts with like all the evil in the world, right? There's so many different factors. There's my own evil. There's like my own sin. There's this whole sin of the world system. And then there's also these spiritual forces of evil that are all working about bringing about evil. But what we do know is that God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's Romans 8.28. And it's a very popular Bible verse and one that sometimes can be too casually thrown out there. It's, it sometimes might feel like a Band-Aid slapped on, slapped on a gaping wound. Like, oh yeah, God works all things according to good. Here, you know, don't worry about your depression or your, you know, whatever. Um, but don't let its popularity turn it into a cliche that robs it of its power, right? Because it's still the truth. God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That means that every single pain that God has allowed in your life, every single pain that he has carried you through, he's allowed it because it's absolutely necessary for the good plans he has for you. 
Like Joseph, whose brothers sold him into slavery, and he went from slavery to prison to prison, and then finally got back up to being the second in command of Egypt, he told his brothers at the end of all that, hey, you meant this for evil. Like, your plan was evil, but God meant this, your evil for good. So God doesn't let these bad things happen to us because we deserve it or because we didn't earn the good things, um, but because we, he is working out his good plans for us. We don't stand on the strength of our goodness our deeds are our love. Don't forget that. Paul is saying here at the end of everything that he's been saying that he wants to make sure we remember, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, not our own. It's the armor of God that we put on, not the armor of ourselves. The strength of our protection comes from God. And what do we need to be protected from? Well, here it says that we need to be protected from the devil's schemes. And sometimes it makes people uncomfortable to talk about the devil, right? The idea of like a horn-headed boogeyman seems kind of superstition and unrealistic, even to people who have no problem believing in God and spirits and and, all that kind of stuff. But to think about the devil, like Satan, you know, the, the little red guy on your shoulder, that seems kind of goofy. It seems kind of outdated. Or... They may be on the opposite end of the spectrum where they live in constant fear of Satan and they look for devils under every rock and they think, oh, you, you don't say Satan's name out loud because if you speak of the devil, he'll appear and he'll ruin everything. But the Bible is not shy about Satan. It says that he clearly exists, that he clearly has power, and he's talked about as a danger to be watched against, but not to fear. This whole passage in Ephesians 6, is talking about fighting a battle. And in order to fight any battle effectively, you need to know your enemy. So who is Satan? Who does the Bible say Satan is? Ephesians 2 calls him the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is at work in those who are disobedient. He is called the God of this age in 2 Corinthians 4.4. And Revelation 12.9 says that he leads the whole world astray. Jesus calls him a murderer and the father of lies in John 8.44. And 1 John 5.19 says that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. So Satan is a powerful, evil, spiritual being, a creation that has rebelled against his creator, and he's bent on opposing and corrupting and destroying those whom God loves, which is namely all of humanity. And Satan is also not alone in his rebellion, right? The Bible describes this, and Paul, in this passage, talks about the rulers and the authorities and the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. He's not getting into the details of all this, but what we're meant to understand is that there are many demons who comprise our enemy, that there's a whole kingdom of darkness and that it fills the whole world. And that the fact that Satan is an evil influence working on a global scale is why Paul can confidently say that our struggle is not a struggle against flesh and blood. That our struggle is not merely against people, even when people are the ones who are willingly choosing to do evil to us. So I don't want you to misread this and think, okay, well, people aren't responsible and it's all these spiritual things. Like The Bible does not paint a, a picture of reality that excuses our responsibility for the choices we make. We can't say, oh, the devil made me do it. I'm fine. Um, In Acts 5, Satan filled the heart of a man named Ananias with the idea to lie to the Holy Spirit. But it is Ananias who's responsible, who's held responsible for making the choice to sin. The reality of good and evil that the Bible describes is a complex, mysterious collaboration of the natural and the spiritual. 
Not every struggle can be boiled down to just one root cause. Like, oh, well, this one's physical and this one's spiritual and they never should the two meet. Um, Because these things are all kind of intertwined and woven together, that means that there are multiple avenues of remedies that we need to pursue in our struggles and our situations. So let's take a struggle with depression, for example. You might experience depression due to chemical imbalances in your brain, right? Like uh, something to do with your biology, something that could just simply be medically treated. Or it might be more of a psychological problem. You might be fighting depression because of a series of hard circumstances that are causing you lots of mental and emotional strain. Depression might come on as a result of guilt and shame from moral failure, either your moral failure or others, right? So it could be a result of, you know, personal sin. Or there might actually be like a spiritual force of depression that is trying to push itself into your life. The Bible does not have to say, or does not say that it has to be one or the other. These different factors can and often do work together with each other to beat you down and to cut you off from the experience of the good life that God has called you to. If you try to simplify your worldview by ignoring the physical side or ignoring the mental side or the moral side or the spiritual side, you're not going to be able to effectively deal with the struggles of life because you're only going to be treating this thing while all these other factors are working in the background and you're not paying attention to them. So Paul is writing to the Ephesians, to the church in Ephesus, and to us, and telling us to pay special attention to the truth that just as God loves you and has a wonderful plan for you, that he works through all the mental, physical, moral, and spiritual aspects of your life, Satan and his forces hate you, and they have a terrible plan for you that they are trying to work through all the different physical, mental, moral, and spiritual aspects of your life. And so what this means is that there is a battle behind every battle that you face. The people who hurt you and who oppose you, and even the people who simply annoy you, they're not really the main problem or the only problem. They are symptoms of the problem. Um, They might be slandering your name or, you know, doing these things to hurt you out of jealousy or bitterness or selfish ambition or just out of their own mess and junk because they've been hurt. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. What's going on under the surface, behind the scenes, is also a spiritual battle that Satan is waging against you, as well as the people or person or the person or people being used against you. So I find this to actually be quite a relief, right? Because recognizing that my true fight is not against the people who are trying to oppose me helps me clarify Jesus' commands to love my enemies and to pray for those who persecute me. It makes it easier for me to pray to God to forgive people who have wronged me because I don't need to fight against people because I know that I can fight for them, right? If I can see that their actions are because they have been taken captive by Satan to do his will, as 2 Timothy 2.26 says, or because Satan has lied to them and filled their hearts, as Acts 5 says, then it opens up an avenue, sorry, an avenue for me to have the appropriate response of compassion because I've been taken captive sometimes too. Like, I let Satan fill my heart with lies too. And what I need in those times is not judgment. It's not punishment. It's not vengeance. What I need when, I, when Satan is taking my, captive my heart or leading me astray is I need rescue. Like, I need pity. I need compassion. I need help. And that's what we can turn on to other people when we see them opposing us or when situations are piling up against us. We can see, hey, this is not just about what I'm seeing here. There's other things. There's a way I've got been given weapons to fight with, and I can use this to fight for these people, not against them. Because 
that's what we've been given, right? Jesus saw us. He saw me, a willing captive of sin, a willing prisoner of Satan. And because he loved me, because he loved us, he gave his life for ours to set us free, to set me free, to bring me out of that captivity and into his family, to bring me out of death and into life. And then even after I have life, sometimes I just put those chains back on my feet. I'm like, oh, well, that feels good. My leg feels weird without having that chain on there. So I put that chain back on, and I start walking back into sin. I start walking back into Satan's kingdom. And even then, he does not leave me with, he does not leave me alone. He does not let, abandon me to my own devices or just sit in judgment on me, right? He goes back out for me to rescue me and to remind me that he's filled me with new life and then that's not who I am anymore. And because we've been filled with the life of Jesus, we have the power and the responsibility to bring that life into every situation that we step into, into all these different struggles and all these different relationships that we face. Um, 1 John 3.8 says that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And we carry that same mission as we move through life. We crush the works of the devil with the life of Jesus. And so what are the works of the devil? What are these schemes that Paul is saying that we're supposed to stand against? Well, Satan's major, major goal is the destruction of God's people. He knows he can't do anything against God because God's power is far too great. Like, there is no comparison. There is no contest between the creator and his created. <laughs> and Satan knows this because he's already tried it. He's already tried it and he failed. Jesus in, John, in Luke 10 says that he saw Satan fall like lightning for heaven, from heaven. So when Satan tried to step against God, it was just like, ooh, gone. It was over. Right? So Satan knows he can't touch God. Like, well, hey, well, that's, that's, a, that's a wash over there. So knowing he doesn't stand against a chance against God, Satan has turned all of his fury against us because we are the far more vulnerable children and we have God's heart. We're the ones that God loves. And 1 Peter 5.8 says that Satan roams around. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, right? Because he thinks if he can get to us, then he can get to God's heart because that's the only way he can hurt God. He's always looking to destroy. But uh, Satan has run into some serious roadblocks in this, even in this mission. Because one, he's a roaring lion on a leash in a cage. The Bible shows that Satan does not have the authority in himself to just do whatever he wants in the world. He has to ask God for permission. Uh, he adds, asks God for permission to sift Peter like wheat. He's like, all right, I'm going to push Peter to the edge. I'm going to make him fail. But he had to ask God for that. And Jesus said that he prayed for Peter in um, Luke 22, 31. And then also in the book of Job, we see get a picture behind the curtain of heaven, and we see... Satan asking God, hey, let me, let me punk this guy, Job. I'll show you that he doesn't really love you. And then God's like, okay, well, don't hurt him. Don't hurt his body. And he's like, okay, well, whatever, that sucks. And then he comes back, he's like, and God's like, hey, Job, Job succeeded, right? He didn't, he didn't curse me. You were wrong. He's like, yeah, because you didn't let me touch him. Let me touch him, and I'll, I'll give him to curse you. And God's like, all right, but don't kill him. So like, even when Satan tries to work his power, he still has to be limited by God, which is great news for us because we have that promise that God will not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. And we know that's for certain because Satan's not a wild card over here, right? God is still always in control and he can always turn these things around for his goodness and his grace and his love. Um, and the second roadblock that Satan comes up against is that he can't destroy those who are in Christ Jesus. The ones that Satan hates the most, like those who have followed Jesus and who love him, Satan can't touch him. 
Jesus says in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Ephesians 2 says that God raised us up with Jesus and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. And Colossians 3 says that our life is hidden with, with Christ in God. We've already covered Satan can't touch God, right? So Satan's main goal to destroy us, he can't do it. So then, yeah, he can't destroy our, our, he can't ultimately destroy our true eternal life, the life that he really hates and wants to get. So what's Satan's strategy then? Since he can't take away this new life, this new humanity that God's given us in Jesus, he does everything in his power to keep us from walking in the power of that new life. He can't separate us from the love of God because that's in Christ Jesus, but he can do everything he can to separate us from the feeling of God's love, from the experience of God's love. Satan's desire is to keep as many people as he can in the fog so that he, they keep, they're kept from walking in the power of their true identity, the identity that God created them to have, the identity that comes through the gospel and the new creation that we've become in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says that Satan, the God of his age, he's blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Like That's his goal. He's like, I don't want them to see Jesus because that's when everything starts changing. And so um, if he can keep someone from ever seeing the truth of Jesus, then he can lead them through all the different pains and pleasures of, the li- of life, and he can lead them all the way to hell, you know, cackling all the way. But if they've already escaped his grasp by clinging to Jesus, by letting Jesus into their hearts, then Satan can't do that, but he at least wants to lead them through pain and pleasures and distractions into a life of meaninglessness and powerlessness, right? He has many ways to do this, but one of the most significant weapons, and one of his favorite weapons in his arsenal is the weapon of deception. So it should come as no surprise to us that Satan is the deceiver, right? Jesus calls him the father of lies, like the creator of lies, and said that when he lies, he speaks his native language. And deception can be very subtle, right? Like we like to think that Satan comes with like the heads turning all the way around and like vomit, vomiting black, you know, demon possession, that kind of stuff. But Satan doesn't like that tactic because when that happens, you're like, oh, people know, oh gosh, I got to pray. Like if, if, so, if, you, if my head turned around, and I started speaking weirdness, you guys would be like, okay, this is a spiritual battle. We got to stop this. But if Satan comes at me subtly and just makes me think different things or like puts different thoughts in my head, then I, I might never know. I might never notice. And one of the ways that, um, the first thing that Satan did, this is the oldest trick in the book. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, in the beginning, God gave them one rule. He said, you can't eat, you can eat anything except for from this one tree. And so the first thing Satan does to lie to Eve and to like start getting her to like start questioning God is is he misquotes God. He says, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? You can't eat it from any of these beautiful trees. And uh, so Eve corrects him, but you know, that's kind of like a sales tactic. It's like a bargaining tool. You say something outlandish and crazy so that people engage with you out there, and then you can start working them closer to like what you actually want them to do. Because then after he says, did God say you can't eat of any tree? And he's like, oh, well, no, not any tree. We just, we can't eat of that tree. Then he can move on to the next deception of, oh, God's not, God's not serious about that. That's not real. Um, Satan loves to ask us, hey, did God really say this? Or did God really mean that? Because if he can trick us into rationalizing away why our situation is different 
or why this act doesn't quite fit the definition of what God says, then he can lead us into a thick fog where we have greater and greater difficulty seeing God and seeing the truth about life. And, uh, and then he also likes to lie to us. We already talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but uh, he likes to lie to us to get us to doubt who God is, doubt God's motives. Like, did God say he, didn't eat, he can't eat any tree? No? Oh, but still not even this one tree? Oh, well, that God, man, I don't think he's got your best interest at heart. Like, this tree is a good tree. You're not really going to die. God just knows you're going to be like him. And so once we start questioning who God is and how God feels towards us, then it allows us to, you know, to, it tempts us to disobey him and to try to do things on our own. Satan uses these same tactics on us today. Like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. He will lie to us. He'll poke us with questions. He'll misquote or misuse God's word. To get, he'll try to get us to believe that God is either the way that our sin wants him to be or some other way that we in our goodness don't want him to be. Um, and the more that we grip the lie, the less we grasp God's love. And the less we grasp God's love, the less we grasp the life that he's called us to. So one of the major remedies for this is to, be fully, is to fully immerse ourselves in the word of God. Because the more familiar we are with the truth, of who God is and how God is, the more easily we'll be able to recognize when, you know, a fake, when Satan presents a fake God for us. We'll be able to root out the subtle and blatant lies that Satan tells us about God. And Satan won't just lie to us about God. Of course not. He's also going to lie to us about other people, right? He's going to want us to, get the, to believe the worst about their motives and their character. He's going to highlight their flaws and say, hey, this is this thing that, that really is annoying to you is the most important thing about this person. Um, or he'll tell us that, hey, these, these other people have it together. They're perfect. There's something wrong with you because look at them. Satan always wants to distort value, right? He always wants us to see others as either more important and wonderful than they are or less important and less wonderful and more evil than they are because he always wants us to lure us into that comparison game. Because if we're looking around at other people, we're not looking up at God. And if we're looking around at other people, it's easy for us to get caught in the fog of where we are instead of looking at Jesus and being pulled out of that fog and into that life that we've been called to live. But when we do turn our eyes on Jesus, we get a better sense not just of these other people, but also of ourselves, right? Like we are important and valuable and wonderful because Jesus loves us and we are made in the image of God. But we are also broken and flawed and awful because that's who we are as a people. So we are deeply broken and we're deeply loved. And if we see that truth, it allows us to not just have grace for ourselves, but also for the people around us. And Satan loves to lie to us about ourselves. Like, I'd be surprised if you don't have, like, at least one core lie, a significant lie that Satan keeps coming back to you. It's like his greatest hit, the one that he keeps wanting to hit you over the head with again and again. For me... I discovered that ever since kindergarten, I've held this belief that I'm not worthy of lasting love. Like I can get someone to love me from initially, but that eventually they're going to find some, someone or something bigger and better. They're going to, they're going to ditch me. Um, and this core lie came with the buddy that, okay, well, if no one's ever going to love me for a long time for a, with a lasting love, then I got to protect myself by never fully committing, by keeping my heart and mind always roving, always aloof always safe from the inevitable heartache. I need to do whatever it is to get as many people as possible to love me so that way when they inevitably fall out of love with me, I've got backups. I won't be destitute and alone. 
And so even after years of recognizing this as a lie, I find myself living it out in my friendships, in my marriage, in my fatherhood. It causes me great insecurity and puts tremendous pressure on me to be perfect so that I'm not abandoned. And then it creates a fearful despair at all of my inevitable failures. The belief that no one will love me with a lasting love and the lie that I need to hoard as much backup love as I can shows up in my struggles with lust, in my wandering eyes and my mind. It shows up in my insecurities and friendships. It shows up in, you know, pride when I feel like I'm doing a good job at this. I've lived in such a passive belief in this lie for so long that even after recognizing it, I've got to be reminded to fight it. That's how good Satan is at the deception. Like, even after you recognize the lie, he'll distract you with something else, and then he'll slip that lie back in, back behind the scenes. Um, so somewhere in your life, there's also this kind of lie. It's probably not the same one, same one as mine, but maybe it's so that you'll never be good enough and so that don't let anybody see the real you. Maybe it's that you have to be a winner to have value or that you have to be the smartest person in the world in order to be validated and safe. Um, whether you're dumb or ugly or weak or whatever lie Satan has told you, his desire is to get you to abandon your true identity. Um, instead of running after God, Satan wants you to either be running after or running away from the lies that he's telling you, right? Because if we're occupied with that, then we're not going to be living out the life God's called us to. So again, we need to fill our hearts and our minds with God's word, with the truth of who God says we are, so that we can hear his voice louder than we can hear Satan's voice. We need to constantly reapply God's truth to our lives so that we can see ourselves rightly, right? We need to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, not in, what, um, not in ourselves. Fair warning, guys, my phone just died or whatever, so I no longer have my timer. So you guys are up. We're going to be here for days. <laughs> um, Satan loves to get us to think too highly or too lowly of ourselves right? He's either going to lie to us and make us think that our goodness makes us out of the need of God's grace, or he will lie to us and accuse us and make us think that our badness makes us out of the reach of God's grace. But thankfully, the gospel crushes both of these lies, both of these paths of thinking. On your best and holiest day, there is no good you can do to earn even the tiniest bit of God's favor and love. Right? You fall so short of his standard of perfection that you don't even show up on the scale. But his love and his grace, they cover you for free. And on your worst, most sin-filled day, there is no evil that you can commit that has not already been cleansed and paid for and washed away by the blood of Jesus. His love and his grace, they cover you for free. We don't stand on our own strength. We stand on the strength of the Lord and the power of his might. And that's what we really want to take away from all this. So yes, we have a powerful enemy. But we have an even more powerful God. And he's the one we want to focus on. It's interesting to me that Paul, the apostle who wrote this, he has spiritual insight that we can't even imagine, right? He knows all about these angels and demons and the principalities and all this kind of stuff. But if you read the New Testament, you won't find a lot of stuff like detailing, okay, and there's this kingdom and there's that kingdom and this is how, this, how the devils work. It's kind of like he almost doesn't care. He spends most of his energy, his energy most of all of his writing, and all the writing of the New Testament focusing on, focuses us on God, who God is. It makes us look at him and get our focus there because he knows, Paul knows, God knows that God in us is greater than Satan in the world. 
right? That's 1 John uh, 4, 4. We have nothing to fear. In Luke 10, Jesus told his disciples that he has given them the authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy, like nothing will harm you. And that same promise extends to all of us who believe in Jesus, who, have been, who love God and have been called according to his purpose. Because Satan is powerful, but he cannot ultimately win. Like he might win battles. He might even win battles to like your physical death, but he cannot win the war over your eternal soul. Like one of his main goals is to separate us from the love of God. Well, guess what? Romans 8 says that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not height, nor depth, nor presence, or the future, nor any powers. That's the same powers that we're talking about here. Nor life or death or anything on all creation can separate us from the love of God. Um, and then 1 Corinthians 10, 13 promises that, well, Satan can try his best, but he can't tempt us beyond what we can bear, right? And every time he does, God provides a way out so that we can stand up under it. In 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 9, we see that God is even able to use Satan's evil for God's explicit purposes, right? So like I said, Paul sees, has seen crazy visions of God. He has all this deep understanding of all these mysteries, and he could get conceited. He could get pretty proud by this. And Paul says that in order to keep me from getting conceited, a messenger from Satan was sent to torment me. And I pleaded with God to take it away from me. And God said, no, three times. And he said, hey, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Satan's probably over there throwing his table. He's like, what? That is not what I sent that there for. I sent that thorn in Paul's flesh to punish him, to wipe him out. Like that's not the, my goal, Satan's goal was not to make Paul holier and more humble. That was God's goal. But God uses even Satan's schemes for our good, right? He takes everything. He works good, all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So even when Satan thinks he wins, he loses. And we're promised that he will ultimately and finally lose. Ephesians 6.13 says that we're told to put on the full armor of God. And as a result, we're promised that when all is said and done, when the battle is over, we will be the ones standing. James 4.7 says resist the devil and he will flee. Right? So we don't live in fear. Satan will be conquered and defeated by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus, and the word of our testimony, by us being strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So let's not be afraid of the devil and his schemes. Let's not go tiptoeing around the world looking for a demon under every rock and bush because we know that God is with us and God fights for us. Let us not make the mistake, also not make the mistake, though, of ignoring the fact that we have an enemy who's working against us. It's easier for Satan to get victories against us when we don't even swing a punch in his direction. So I was thinking about, you know, what kind of responses we could have for this. Um, and I was thinking that for those of us who are going in trial, through trials right now, through a hard time, or who are close to someone going through a hard time, and we want to stand in the gap for them, we want to recognize that, hey, our struggle is not merely against flesh and blood. Like, whatever it is, it's now the time to fight the battle of the Spirit to pray against Satan and his schemes and to strengthen ourselves in the Lord so that, we, so that we will stand at the end. And that there are those of us who might recognize that, hey, we've been falling for lies. Um, lies about God, lies about others, lies about ourselves. So let's seek God's face. Let us like, with ourselves and with each other, let us pray and gather and like try to seek God's face, God's truth, to wash out those lies and find healing, to walk in truth. So I'm gonna invite um, Tammy up here and she's going to kind of lead us out in a ministry time.